you're going to be a lot more constrained because it's the player's game, not not the thing you're getting to experiment with internally. You're getting to see them engage with your game directly, but you're going to have to embrace that you've already locked down a lot of the space you're playing in. I suspect a lot of designers are going to feel like the amount of change they want to make for their own satisfactions may simply not map to the needs of players. Have you struggled to know how much you need to change your game once it's live, or if you should at all? Are you worried that if you make too many mistakes, your current players will stop playing? Do you wonder how you'd set up your studio to handle an evergreen product from a design perspective if it really took off? We've got Andre Van Roon to help answer some of these questions. He spent the last five or so years leading design and later the whole studio for League of Legends at Riot Games. He's been adapting a product in big and small ways that entire time and has learned some lessons on how you do that well and what you should avoid. With Andre, we'll walk through what's changed in game design as live service becomes more and more a reality for games and how you can adjust to continually create a better experience for your players. We'll also talk about what types of products do or don't need live design and when you should start thinking about building out a team to handle changes to your live game. You're listening to Building Better Games, where we show industry leaders a better way to make games that players love. Your hosts are Benjamin Carsage and Aaron Smith. We've spent over a decade shipping some of the biggest games in the world. We've also helped game studios around the world improve their approach to building great games. Our mission is simple. Help you ship better games with less work and fight back against the dysfunctional systems that frustrate studios around the world. Andre, it's great to have you here. Do you want to give us a quick intro? Yeah, hey, thanks for having me, Ben and Aaron. So my name is Andre Van Roon. I'm the head of League Studio at Riot, so I oversee League of Legends, Teamfight Tactics, and Wild Rift. Before that, most of my time at Riot's been in various game design roles, starting off in the champion team way back in the day when I actually got to work with Ben a little bit. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was actually somewhere between an urban planner and a civil engineer back in New Zealand before I made a bit of a career swap into the gaming industry. So you made that shift. You jump over into game design on League of Legends. And there it is, boom, at certain points, biggest game in the world, right? Dozens of millions of players playing this. We're patching every two weeks. That was very unique then. It is less unique now, that idea of patching all the time. And I wanted to talk about like the emergence of live service and gameplay as a concept. Where do you see it going as someone who's have sort of been immersed in it from the early, what is that, early 2010s, basically? I mean, I think for a lot of players, at least for the sort of games we're talking about here, this has just become a default expectation. Yeah, that's coming from a very natural place that I think the experience we probably all had growing up of, hey, I love this game, but the company put it out, patched it once or twice, and moved on to something else. But I want to keep playing this. I want more content for Diablo or whatever. But I'm not able to get that. And so I think... We've seen players respond very positively to companies that did that, you know, recurring, ongoing development of a live game, both the small updates and the large updates. Mm -hmm. And we've seen those games be successful, and therefore, of course, we've seen a lot of other companies jump on those same learnings, build up those same capabilities. So I think there's been a very natural evolution there, though possibly almost an overswing towards live service, in some cases, I'd argue. The, well, I think the amount of work you need to put in to give a good live service, I think is pretty pretty substantial. I don't think doing a mediocre job 
of live service is a particularly winning play. You're just going to get outcompeted by other games that are also doing a bunch of good live service and just meeting your players' needs better. So I think if you're in, you need to be in at a pretty good level unless you have something really unique to offer your player base. That's not to say you have to be you know, big or nothing. I think there's some pretty lean approaches when it comes to like you know, game balance or whatever that can, can do an awful lot to keep a game feeling fresh. But you either need to be doing a good job with that sort of level of content, having it be polished, hit the mark, or at least keep, keeping things novel in the appropriate ways, or you need to be providing the right amount of ongoing content and novelty and freshness and content expansion you know, which is, of course, more resource-intensive again. So I think there's some arguments for some experiences that don't actually need that much live service where they make it be, be, be getting a bit bolted on. So when you say you need to be at the, in this at a very at a reasonably high level, like being mediocre at this really isn't doing anybody a service. But you also weren't like, so that means hire 70 people to run complex live service spaces. So there's an idea here that I start interpreting, which is there's a value or a quality that's trying to be achieved when it comes to what good live service gameplay changes mean. And there's a lean version of that, and then there's a a more full-fledged version of that. But as long as you're hitting your high quality at whatever scale you're at, you might be doing just fine. Before we dive into what some of those might be, I'm curious, what do you think of when you think of the principle or the value of what it means to be like a quality live service versus a mediocre one? That's a good question. I mean, I think as a quality live service, you're going to be delivering enough of what your core players are looking for regularly that they want to continue being invested in the game. That it's the, hey, these people get developing the game. They care and they understand. And I can have faith that even if the latest patch didn't give me exactly what I was looking for, that it's worth me continuing to spend my time. Maybe my money you know, getting invested in this experience. And then what that's going to look like is going to vary an awful lot game to game. And even player segment to player segment. You know, for some, it may be all about, hey, did you increase or decrease the damage on the characters I love or struggle with by that critical 5 to 10% for the, the ultra, you know, sweaty, competitive, focused player? And to be clear, I'm not saying that in a derogatory fashion. I've been that player myself many times in the past. Or for others, it may just be the, hey, I want to play in my own particular style and way, but this quirky playstyle just isn't viable at all let me have a bit more fun with that let me get that into the meta i think for other games though it's going to look more like you know new content or variations on existing content or or mutators or new ways to play new game modes that sort of thing and again so much is going to come back down to what's the core appeal of your game is it something that's highly replayable that just needs some tweaks to it today very content dependent game you know do you have that sort of infinitely replayable loop or a more high appeal but very consumable experience as I delve into this space in my mind and I think about all the moving pieces, Andre, one thing I wanted to ask you about is like, there were like, I was thinking about this idea of a lot of game companies who are more in this space, I think have a reactive methodology in how they manage this. And and one of the things I was always so impressed with Riot about and impressed with League about was over the years developing systems to proactively engage with the player base when it came to managing that change. So like a couple examples off the top of my head is like there was strategy on League of Legends, which is like this is the sort of one to two year vision for the game and like where we want to take it in big broad strokes. And then there was, okay, now we have these competitive seasons, which is like one layer lower, which is like 
some of the changes that were too big in scope on the live design side that would have perhaps upended too much of the gameplay to do in the middle of the season would sort of be packaged into these bigger changes. And those bigger changes would occur at specific timeframes that where there was like an agreement with the players about, hey, this makes sense. We're going to start a new season or there's going to be a preseason. And so many deliberate systems for that players came to understand and, and be able to anticipate and form a relationship with Riot over the years. You've got this sort of 30,000 foot view now with the role that you're in. How do you manage those layers? How do you think about those layers? Is there anything I missed there that feels important? And how do you see that system evolving over the years? Oh, okay. A lot of stuff to dig into there. I might actually go slightly in reverse order, just since you talked about, you know, when to engage with players and like that sort of rhythm of the player experience. Yeah. I think that one is really powerful, particularly so that players know when to dip out of an experience or when to be patient because they know when something's coming or when to come back to the game. There's a lot of value to having that sort of recurring cadence. There's a really good GDC talk from the Path of Exile folks, actually. 2019. Now what? It's in the GDC vault. I think it's actually just up on YouTube as well. That basically is really focused on actually kind of similar topic when it comes to live service and how they meet player needs, what those needs are. And one of their big takeaways was the importance of regularity when it came to Path of Exile expansions. And I think there's a really good core point in there that's also benefited the league a lot. If your players know when they should next expect something from you, and if you can really stick to that cadence, they built up a lot of confidence. They know you're doing stuff. They know when to next look for it. They know when to not worry because it's not there. You know, they know when their experience will be stable and, or if they want variety, when their experience will get shaken up. So with League, for example, the usually smallish balanced patch changes and maybe a new champion or whatever every couple of weeks is like that baseline. The occasional larger patch changes that get telegraphed a bit in advance. And then the, you know, the large seasonal changes that come at the end of the year. I think I've done a pretty good job of, of building up that player understanding and ability to stay engaged happily and know what's coming or dip in and dip out as they see fit. I think we've also been fortunate as Riot that we got to build the stuff up gradually. Yeah, As you talked about earlier, when we started out with League, live service wasn't quite as much of a, a just baseline expectation for everything. We didn't have the same player expectations from other titles that somebody launching a new game today would. And so we got to gradually figure out, cool, okay, two weeks. Two weeks is about the right patch cadence. How often should we put out new content like a champion? We are initially doing that every two weeks as well. Came to realize, cool, that's actually a bit too frequent. Sweet, let's trim down on that. What about larger changes? You know, we've experimented at various times with you know, big mid-seasons or just dropping them any which time, whatever, and you know, reasonably quickly settled on. Okay, big spike once a year works pretty well. There's some smaller stuff in there and so on. And I think... We were very fortunate both to have a bit more time to figure that out before competing with other games doing the same sort of things. And you still talked about this as well, but I wanted to emphasize it too. I think there is so much value in being able to have either individual people or ideally small teams who can be dedicated to thinking about particular spaces, focus on them, rather than everybody try to do everything. The people who, who are accountable for the current state of the live game, doing the two-week patch stuff, for example, making it so that they don't have to feel equally accountable and equally focused split with like the long-term yearly development stuff and vice versa, I think can be really valuable to both of those groups. Not to say they should ignore each other. They've certainly got to be talking. They should be sharing learnings. They should be both playing the game together, of course. But 
there's a huge benefit, I think, in being able to have a bit more focus, a bit more of a dedicated problem or opportunity area. Let's say I'm this, I'm a brand new uninformed producer and I just was like, okay, I was listening to Building Better Games and this guy named Andre, he's a big deal at Riot. Riot's pretty cool. That means we need two weeks to do small changes and we'll do big changes every year and a few times a year we'll do medium-sized changes. All right, everybody, so let's go make our Zelda clone changes every two weeks, right? Or whatever, right? Like, so you have this answer and... And I'm wondering, how would you modify that? Wait, obviously, I'm not asking you for like this length for this type of game. Like, but you know, broadly, how do you think about that? How would you think about that if you went to a totally different product? I mean, I think ideally you get that sort of slow, gradual ramp up in game. You get to work with your players and understand them and how often they're looking for change. And I think very few times we're going to get that sort of luxury. We certainly haven't always with some of our other products at Riot. Right. Yeah. And so I think you're gonna want to look look at a lot of comparables. Yeah, some that'll be by genre, that'll be by particular elements of your audience, that'll be by platform. So what a com- free competitive PvP game needs in terms of balance is probably gonna be more frequent than some of the live service adjustments that more progression focused PvE experiences on let's say on PC at least may need. Look at some stuff with longer session times. But then a lot of mobile games and you know, their players will have much more frequent update cadences again. Just because there's that expectation from that audience of there's always at least something new, even if it's pretty small, every two to three days, ideally, for a lot of markets. Similarly, looking at your audience and things like, hey, how do they play? Do they play a lot on the weekends and very little during the week? Are they, or vice versa, are they you know, younger, sort of you know, Gen Z or Gen Alpha players? Or are they somewhat older players like ourselves? You know, what are they looking for? What are they expecting? And, you know, when they do get an update, they want the enormous, hey, here's a completely new way to play, new game modes, huge content dump every three to six months. Or do they just want the game to be constantly getting a little bit better regularly? And I think you're going to have to unpack an awful lot of stuff like that. And then then just do some trial and error. And, of course, talk to your players to understand what's going to be right for your game and whether that's going to be the once every three months mini expansion pack feel, the once every 12 months big update i go back to 12 months because i think there's something very natural for people about yearly cadences they're very intuitive they're very easy to understand whether it's the just throw stuff out whenever it's ready i i have my doubts there but i think it does work well for certain types of game and is particularly well understood from you know smaller more indie developers who are being really transparent about how their updates are going with their players I got to ask one question too, by the way, it touches on something we just talked about. One of the things I think is fascinating is this idea of what if you have multiple audiences? How do you balance that? Like, how do you devise a strategy that serves multiple masters in a way that doesn't piss off everybody? I mean, a series of compromises, to, to say the obvious. <laughs> for for Balance on League, for example, we divide the, the play base into four different buckets that we look at. Uh, statistically, the the average player, the meaningfully above average skill player, the really high skill, so this is like the absolute top of the ladder in solo queue player, and the pro player. And then we'll look at things like play rate, ban rate, and, well, actually for, for pro play, it's mainly mainly pick rate, just because you know, win rate is such a small sample size. And we'll sort of set ourselves some guardrails of, hey, if things are outside of these ranges, Let's investigate. You know, not let's absolutely act on this, 
but something is probably wrong. We should figure out what's going on there. And a lot of the time we can get characters and or items or whatever into a reasonable space within those sort of ranges we've set for all of the groups. Sometimes we're just going to have to say, hey, this particular champion, for those of you who, who know League, it's going to be somebody like Riser Azir, may simply have to be beyond the bounds of weak for the average player because they are so dominant in a coordinated team set. Is that ideal from a purely game, you know, average gameplay perspective? Yeah, probably not. But we think to keep a healthy esport and game scene that are very much the same experience, which is, you know, we think pretty important to the appeal, that that's the sort of trade-off to make. And vice versa with some characters who'll be very strong in an uncoordinated environment and just never succeed in pro. One thing worth saying about pro, though, while we balance around the capabilities of the pro players, we don't see the pro players themselves as the primary audience there. Yeah, you know, this, this may be obvious, but it's, it's the viewer. Yeah, the person who's watching. Right. Who does want to see a really competitive experience. Yeah. Usually. But also wants to see a dynamic, action-filled meta, a, a range of upsets, a, a ideally variety of champions picked, that sort of thing. We've talked about this idea of internalizing player feedback and understanding the player experience so much as a key part of how to be effective and deliberate when managing the live service for a game like this. What have you learned about how to do that effectively? And how do you think about listening to players and, and what does that mean specifically in internalizing that and in internalizing that effectively? And Yeah, so I think you're going to want a wide range of different ways of understanding the player experience and over-dependence on any one of those can be pretty dangerous. The first one is actually just either being a player yourself or spending a lot of time watching people engaging directly with the game. I don't think there are any substitutes for that experience. And it can, especially sometimes if you're like focused on the future development side of things, be pretty easy to lose, lose touch with that. The second, talking directly to players, you know, getting that one-on-one -on -one or one on a small group at least, understanding of, hey, what are they doing? How are they feeling about it in particular? I think that's, that one's especially critical there. And what would they like to see different? Not to say you're going to act on all their feedback, but getting that actual back and forth conversation from somebody with a meaningfully different perspective to yourself and probably different capabilities, very valuable. Third one, if you're in a position to do so, a bunch of you know, quantitative surveying or actual research into what the player base as a whole are telling you. Try and get that representative scientific view. And then the final one, of course, just looking at the actual data for what are they doing when you update, make this sort of change or update those characters or change some of your experience curves or whatever. Do they play more? Do they play less? Do they play at different times of day? Do they play with their friends more often, they completely give up on their social networks. My personal take, if you're overly reliant on any one or even two of those, you're going to be missing a bunch of stuff. At the very least, ways to make the game better, potentially ways in which what you think you are doing that's making the game better is actually just creating some unhealthy behavior that's a little distortionary that in the long term will undercut a lot of why people liked your game. I want to take a quick break from the podcast. Over the last few years, producers have been asking Aaron and I, what's my role? What are the skills I should develop? How do I advance in my career? Game production is in a rough state. We're launching a course to help. It's called Succeeding in Game Production, What You Weren't Taught. Early feedback from our beta testers has been overwhelmingly positive, so we're moving into early access. If that's of interest, check it out in the show notes or head to buildingbettergames.gg and click course. Thanks. Let's get back to the podcast. There's two principles that I'm I'm pulling out of this one I already referenced, which is this constant coming back to the player. When we're thinking about live service and gameplay and game design, we're thinking about the player, we're thinking about the audience, how we're serving them. And the second one is this idea of iteration. This like 
that you don't get this right on the first try. And so there's an iteration to find what might be good. And then there's the continual iteration to keep keep updating with your players. And I'm going to bring up two games, I think, that are interesting because they're highly competitive and they receive very few patches. And I'm, I'm curious what your takes are on them. One of them is StarCraft Brood War, right? And then Counter-Strike is obviously another one that I think I looked it up. It was like 25 years old or something now getting very close to that. It was because it was before 2000 that, that, that the original like CS1 came out. And while there have been, like, there was CS1 and there was 1.5 and 6 and Go and now there's CS2. Like it has received changes, but if you think about it, each of those changes is far less frequent than like entire games for most places. So really the core experience has remained very stable. Are those unicorns? What's going on there? Like, why why did people engage with them for such a long period of time? I mean, I think there's a really compelling core to, to both of those games. I think they're also serving a, a player base slash drawing in a player base who want to really master execution, understanding, and strategy for a relatively stable state. Like, stability there is not just a, well, I guess we don't need to make changes. I think it's a core part of the appeal. You know, the mastering, you know, particular you know, weapon sprays or build orders and, and how to respond, I think is the sort of thing you want to do when you have confidence that you know, two or four or whatever weeks or, or even a year later, that's not going to be completely thrown out the window. All the four-gate tossing yep. out there from StarCraft II, the, the bitter four-gators are just, we're all like, ah, oh, darn it all. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, there'll be some, there'll be some trade-offs, to, to quote somebody earlier. But yeah, again, it comes back to understanding what your audience are looking for. It's not like we haven't seen meaningful updates over time to StarCraft or to Counter-Strike. There's been a lot in there, though it's tended to be less focused on substantial upheavals to the more core experience and more some of the alternate game modes or you know, features like the, the the marketplace for CSGO or whatever, or range of cosmetics. So you're still giving players some degree of, of freshness and novelty, but letting them keep a very consistent core to just keep getting better at. That's a great answer. And and there, I actually love how you brought up the idea of, especially in Counter-Strike, and, and a lot of games take this approach, that the changes were actually the cosmetics and the loot boxes and all this other stuff. It was like, and to your point, it was almost the advantage of the core game stayed the same. And the thing that I think, and I'll be honest, I expected this and I was wrong, a game like Counter-Strike or games like it, that was that stable for that long, I assumed would bleed players over time but eventually it's going to be replaced by other products and the new players will go towards those other products. But I think perhaps in the, the same way that because you never changed it and the core offering was so good, a player today might be just as interested as a player was 25 years ago to get into that experience. And because you aren't constantly changing it to serve a particular player base, you're not actually like narrowing accessibility. That balance between do we make changes that make our existing players happier versus do we make the game more appealing in some way to those not playing it yet? I mean, yeah, there's a, again, a constant trade-off there between the, those groups. I think in a lot of cases you will find things that are good simplification or at least streamlining for that would benefit getting in a new audience are sometimes actually good for the established player as well. Like, I think it's easy to add a lot of complexity or just let a bunch of clutter build up under the justification of, oh, it's for the, the deeply engaged and high-skill players. When even sometimes those players may not want to deal with a bunch of unnecessary jank. To your point earlier about you know, games like you know, Counter-Strike having, having such persistence, 
I think there's an interesting flip side there where games that are very heavy on the constant update and novelty, I think are going to be a lot more vulnerable to being disrupted by something else new and novel because they inherently have a player base that want constantly changing new novel experiences. Mm. Whereas things like Counter-Strike or StarCraft that are you know, serving a player base who want the more static experience to master, something better, you know, not just a novel, but actually better at doing those things for those players is going to have to come along to knock, to knock them off their perch. And mm-hmm. I think when you get to a sufficiently polished and you know, appealing state there, that's, that's a really powerful position to be in. I wanted to say one thing because the examples you both are giving, they're like, they're nothing if not a live service. It makes sense that it's in companies like Blizzard and Riot and, um, you know, now PUBG Corp and, you know, Epic, like they're sort of claim to fame as live service games. But there are a lot of other companies who are just starting to sort of dabble a little bit now. You almost have to dabble a little bit these days, don't you? Like you can't. <laughs> I think there's a lot of advantage to being able to dabble a bit. Yeah. But maybe I'm somewhat devil's advocating here. But looking back a couple of years, Elden Ring really stands out to me here. Mm-hmm. Sure, they, they did some patches. They balanced a bit of stuff. They fixed some bugs. They added, a, I think, a tiny bit of broken content. But mainly, that was not a live service approach to that game, which I think was actually a fantastic choice. And I say that as somebody who loves those games, but very much, yeah. a, hey, we're delivering a particular thing. We're going to play to our strengths. We're going to polish the experience just to make sure it was what it's intended to be. And then we're going to go make the next. And I think there's good cases sometimes to just embrace that. But I'm certain there have also been a lot of cases of game, single-player games coming out with a multiplayer or definitely multiplayer games having a campaign that's more a sort of a publisher push of, hey, we got to have this for broad initial appeal. The, the something to put on the box, effectively. Argument. Right. The first Titanfall, the campaign of the first Titanfall. I forgot about that. Yeah, but then the second <laughs> Titanfall had such a fantastic campaign. It, oh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. I mean, great games. I, I think I'll try and pull it back again, though, to the audience. Like, who are you serving? And if you have, even if you have something great here for the single-player FPS aficionado or the really competitive FPS player, will you be able to reach them with the, the brand, the positioning you have by putting these two things together? I wanted to ask you, are there any big challenges on your mind these days in this sort of ecosystem when it comes to like running a live service at scale, how to manage all of the design decisions that are made across like a broad organization? Like, are there any like big meaty problems that you're sinking your teeth into right now that you're like, huh, this is something I'm thinking about, or this is something I've recently overcome or whatever? Uh, A few things come to mind. I mean, the first, as you mentioned earlier, you know, League has been around for quite a while. It's like 14 years at this point. And that trade-off of how to help new players who could love League get into the game, understand that it's for them, versus continue to serve the current core, you know, gets, a, I think, on average, a little bit harder each year. So trying to find ways to reduce barriers to entry to help people reassess the brand of a game that they may have been aware of for a long time and either dismissed as not for them or, or tried and bounced off, I think is, is, is really important to, to keep a game like that going. Andre, you better get your ass on social media and start doing some TikTok dances. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll go find some collaborators to do that on my behalf. That, that ain't me. Um, then on a somewhat less, you know, challenges of an old game note, is, I mean, as you know, we've got other games with, that use the League IP now and some other stuff like, you know, Arcane TV show that's also in there. 
and trying to figure out what are the exact right ways for all those different pieces of a you know, deliberately connected ecosystem to feed into each other. Or if you want to take the, you know, focus on the problems rather than the opportunities to constrain each other. Everything doing its own thing in isolation, cool, you can move a lot quicker, you can give a lot more creative empowerment to the individual teams, that sort of thing. But that undercuts a lot of the player promise of these characters, these stories, this world are connected. So exactly how do you get large organizations that already have their own, you know, of course, challenges all rowing in the same direction internally to work with other large organizations to do things in a cohesive manner without just completely slowing everything down? One we're very, very much going through at the moment. Okay, now you got to spill a little bit of tea for us. So what, like, what are your theories on the best way to approach some of that? Like, do you have any core lessons there where you're like, I found it's great to do this or to have people talk about these? Like, what, what are your thoughts on that problem? I mean, we're still, still in midst of solving a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I certainly think having, having at least a few people whose job it is to have that overarching view and make sure the right people are having the right conversations has been very valuable. And to be clear, that's not the get a few people to just dictate everything, but get a few people who are really good at, you know, connecting the streams and sort of untangling the messes occasionally has been very valuable. We recently did announce to to players of of League and other games that all the different things we're doing within the League IP are very much sharing the same canon versus the prior stance of being a bit murky as to whether, say, Arcane that was similar but not the same as the way the the world and the characters are portrayed in game was a separate continuity, like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universes versus the comics. You know, we do believe that for what we're trying to do, the two very much being the same world, even if there's different, you know, different art styles and so on, is the way to go. But we're in the midst of figuring out, hey, how do we efficiently and effectively do that? How much slowdown effectively to our uh, ability to produce various things do we need to accept in order to get that more cohesive whole? I don't know, maybe ask me in a few years. I might be able to see the forest for the trees at that point. That's a problem that probably is is the exclusive territory of a handful of very fortunate companies. It's almost like a privilege a little bit to get to solve that problem, right? Like not every company gets to solve that problem. That version of it, at least for like IP across many titles. Yeah. But I think you're going to get different variations on the same theme when it comes to, you know, shared technical spaces or even sort of player understanding of genre conventions or whatever. So I'd expect a lot of different companies to go through, you know, uh, different takes on the same sort of you know, shared space versus do your own thing uh, quandary there. I have a huge, potentially huge, maybe maybe very small question, actually. You were just talking about that, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, the scale, right? So you came on board, and you were a designer making champions, and then some number of years later, you became the team of teams level design leader, and then a few years later, you became the league design leader, and then you became the head of league and then you became the head of League Studio. Is that is that the right progression? Just for the people out there, because this is this podcast is for leaders in games who are frustrated with solving the wrong problem. One of the things that Aaron and I truly believe about scaling is that what the wrong and right problem is is really hard because as you scale, it changes. And I'm curious, when you think through those levels, I don't know how, which ones you want to stop at, but I would just feel like, what's something you're like, hey, this was the right problem and this was the wrong problem when I was a champion designer. And when I became the team of teams designer, 
this was the right problem, this was the wrong problem. Is that something you'd be interested in doing, just kind of like walking through? So when I was managing the design team for the for champions on League of Legends, for example, I think one of the key things there was giving the relatively junior design team a lot of chances to try to fail, to learn, to sort of experiment through that process, making sure not to try and undercut that by cutting things off too quickly or giving answers when I had them or thought I had them um, or being overly risk adverse, you know. I think that that focus there so much on developing talent on, on mapping out new spaces. And by contrast, I think the more senior you get, the more sometimes you do sometimes need to give the answers or at least very least just set some stronger guardrails to focus a bit more on overall you know, player and business result versus individual growth because of the scale of you know, that those decisions going to take impact on. Or if you want to flip it around, today I spend an awful lot of time working with leaders who themselves manage games, or, or at least huge chunks of games. And so there's an awful lot of focus on leadership, accountability, exact definitions of role, of how they are managing their own managers, that sort of thing, that are pretty different and you know, much less in, in the details, much less hands-on than, than I had in some of the roles earlier in my career. And that's not to say I don't want to be there in the details still. And I think it is important for game leaders at any level in the organization to still sometimes get that direct you know, exposure to as much level of detail as possible. But you certainly can't afford to spend a lot of time getting really stuck into the coal mine there tempting as it will be and as, as essential as it is in some of the other roles earlier. So that's something you've you've had to let go of from a percentage of the pie perspective, right? Like the yeah. percentage of the pie is going down. Actually, I actually think I overdid it at one point and was, you know, felt a little bit too distant from direct process of making process of making games, the ability to chat with those doing so at the hands-on individual contributor level. So I sort of tried to get back a, a small percentage of the pie each week both for that understanding and just for my own satisfaction when it comes to still feeling I'm in touch with game making a bit more, you know? Yeah. There's something I wanted to ask you real quick. Let's say I'm out there, I'm a small company or even a mid-sized company and I've started to have a game that seems like it's got a player base and it's moving. You know, it's not the biggest game in the world, but it's moving in the right direction. What advice would you give about how to set up a team for live design, for live gameplay? You know, we they basically, they have made the call. We're not in Elden Ring. We are something where some amount of regular content or whatever it is, change to the game, whatever that might be, is going to be part of our world. Where do you start? What are the things you think about when it comes to a live design organization? So I think I'd start with, I guess, three things. Org structure, people, and probably tooling. Org structure, just to a discussion earlier about trying, if you can afford to do so, have a small number of people who are dedicated to the space, who get to live and breathe that, who don't have to be concerned about the a lot of the processes or the longer term challenges or, or whatever. Let them be really focused there. Second one, if you are fortunate enough to be able to do so, if you can recruit people with the needed other skills from your players, even if they don't necessarily have ex- existing game dev backgrounds, they've got the understanding of the game, they've worked in a professional environment before, or they show them that they can. Ideally, they've got a bunch of good soft skills. Those people will be fantastic. They may have to pick up some of the you know, game design or broader game dev capabilities, but they should have really good instincts for what the player base wants. They should have a good ability to, to speak with the players directly. They should very much be able to hit the ground running. So 
encourage anyone in that situation to see if there are opportunities to pick up those sort of people. Especially because you'll often find that, you know, other game devs are probably playing your game. You might be able to get somebody out there for whom this is their new favorite thing. They've been thinking about changing companies or at least open to for a while anyway. Can you pick them up? And the third then, just on the tooling side, the ability to make frequent, rapid changes to game balance or game state, really valuable. Not saying you need the most advanced, fully featured suite of tools ever to do that. There's probably a pretty small number of things that would be really, really beneficial to the people doing that work, though, in terms of allowing them to focus on understanding the state of things and talk to players about it, not on a challenging to implement and or roll out and or bug fix process to actually make those changes in the first place. So consider some investment there. When, you know, you're a designer, I'm not. So like, it's harder for me to get into the head of a designer. But when you think, when you put your, you know, your career long designer hat on, mm. you think about like, what does it mean to, to go about great design in a live service environment versus perhaps another environment? What are the things that come up for you? It, I mean, in no particular order, the first one, you're going to be a lot more constrained because it's the player's game, not, not the thing you're getting to experiment with internally. So you're getting to talk with a bunch of people, see them engage with your game directly, but you're accepting slash going to have to embrace that you've already locked down a lot of the space you're playing in for many genres. Uh, the second, you're, I suspect a lot of designers, I've certainly seen this pattern, are going to feel like the amount of change they want to make for their own satisfaction slash the state of the game they can they can see in the future may simply not map the needs of players. This is an expansion on the previous point, but you may want to go in and fix a lot of stuff or add a lot of things, change things that is not right for your audience or that is only right for the very small, extremely vocal percentage of it. And so unpacking who you're actually serving when you have the desire to do a particular thing is going to be really important. It humbles all of us, yeah. live service game development. Aaron and I are huge Star Wars fans. We used to talk about the old Star Wars books and all this stuff, and I think about when Lucasfilm and George Lucas specifically made a bunch of changes. And it was weird being this long-term fan, you know, the Han shot first thing and all that type of stuff, and, and realizing, like, this thing that even though I never owned it, that I felt like was ours. And then to have somebody come in and say, no, that's not what happened. It was like this. And you're like, but no, that like, that's not, you just, you know, and we'd say all sorts of things and we try to rationalize it. Han Solo's character arc is not what it should be and all this different stuff. And, but there was this thing of like, hey, it's mine. It was never yours. It was always mine. There's a famous SNL skit where they talk about this, where like the the backlash against the first three episodes, and then they have like a like one of the SNL cast playing George Lucas, and he's like, "Hey, if you know what, if you don't like Jar Jar Binks, then don't don't go see the movie. I don't care." Like, and it's it is yeah. that again that it kind of touches on jokingly that principle of like whose IP really was it, and I think that I love that that you called that out, Andre. I never actually ever in my life took a step back to think like, well, that does actually constrain design and it does constrain product, but it's like, it can also be a beautiful thing as well, because that means that you have this group of people who feel so passionate about this thing that you're making. It's like, wow, a lot of people really care about this and they won't shut up about it. <laughs> I, mean, I think figuring out whether this is 
something that meets the current audience's needs or something that can work within the current game's construct, even if it's kind of a little bit more out there. And I'll, I'll actually call out Star Wars Andor, I think, as a, a good example yeah. here of something pretty different, but that did still work for Star Wars fans because yeah. it was true to what Star Wars meant to them, even if it did it in different ways. So reinventing without throwing out or rejecting. Yeah, but it, it just it shows you as a creator, you have to understand that nuance. That goes back to what you were talking about, about all the different ways you internalize data. Mm -hmm. um, like you can't just rely, you can't just run one, a couple focus groups and then write some notes down. One that was terrifying to me recently was Dune mm -hmm. because I'm, I've read Dune. And I remember when they said a movie was coming out, I was like, oh no, right? Because this has been tried. 2000, whatever it was. And then like 1984, the original. So this has been done and it had been done badly. And when I watched it, I, I could try to explain it. All I know is he hit it. Mm -hmm. He hit the tone. He hit the feel. He hit, he hit the characters. That's what that world was. It was interesting. And then yeah, I think about that as a designer and to go from I made a game, right? I, now the game is out and I have to make the shift for lack of a better term, I'm the god of this world, right? But then you go into it and you have to go like, okay, wait a minute. Even though that I might have thought that or that might have been somewhat true, I now have to shift to being the person who's engaging with the people who love this and play it because it's unlikely they loved all the things that I thought they were going to love. And if and I don't understand that nuance and I don't engage and adjust how I'm approaching this, then... I'm going to tick everybody off. Those forms of partnership slash understanding between community and game developer and how much a lot of the time it's a live service game developer, I think you end up in a lot more of a facilitator or almost tabletop GM sort of role versus straight creator. Andre, this has been awesome. If you were going to send people anywhere, what do you want to plug? That's right. Always working on a bunch of new stuff and looking for new talent. Uh, Riotgames.com slash careers think you'd be a great fit for something there we would very much love to hear from you all right i'm going to summarize what we've been talking about first players expect ongoing live development for live games it's not always the right call if you do this do it well doing it well can be lean it doesn't have to be a huge effort from that like 100 people creating consistency with players helps maintain engagement so whatever your cycle is if the players know it and they relate to it it's going to help them engage with your game more successfully. This should have org design implications as you attempt to bring your organization along to support whatever that consistent cycle or cycles are. Work with your players on this and observe what they do. Third, find multiple ways to understand the player. The most important one is to play, or if you just can't bear to do that, which would be weird, watch others play the game to really see what's going on. But other ones like talking to them, surveys, et cetera, all that will help. Fourth, keeping a game fresh isn't just gameplay. It could be cosmetics or meta progression systems or other things. It doesn't have to be a change the design of the game. Fifth, don't force more live service than you need. Pay attention, especially publishers. Don't think you need a multiplayer component to your game. Think about what you're good at. Think about where your strengths are as a studio. Sixth, the bigger your success, the more complicated the problems of live development and service become. Seventh, if you're a live service game, remember to focus on org, people, and tooling in order to make sure that continues to be successful. Forgetting any of those, you'll fall over. Finally, remember your players feel ownership of the time they've invested in your product as well. Cool. Anything else? I mean, many thanks for having me. Like, 
been a great time chatting to you both. Join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.